in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Brian Fry from Spokane, Washington. Brian, how are you doing, sir? How's it going, everybody? Pleasure to be here. James Bond. That's right. Strap your skis on. Uh, get the horse harnesses ready. We're off to the races. And to join us today with a fresh haircut. This is this is by far the nicest haircut of anybody who's been on the podcast. You can you can hear how nice it is. Luke Treshkovich, how you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks, Russell. Good to be here. Yeah, Bond film. I'm excited. That's right. Today we're doing a Bond film. So we brought in a Bond enthusiast, Luke, just to get. A little acquainted with you and your Bond sensibilities. What was your first Bond movie? Well, it's definitely a Roger Moore film. I started watching Bond films very early on. I have to admit, like below the age of eight or nine, they were a lot of Roger Moore films were a bit of a blur. I tend to think it could be A View to a Kill or The Spy Who Loved Me. I remember the ski scenes. Good one either way. Brian, throwing that one to you. What was your first Bond movie? I feel like my first memory might have been from Dr. No. I, I feel like the, the Dragon Tank has a fairly early lasting place in my head. I bought three or four Bond movies on VHS at a fairly young age. And Spy Who Loved Me was one, uh, View to a Kill, Moonraker, and From Russia with Love. And I basically ran those four films into the ground at a very, probably too young to really get what I was seeing. I just thought it was cool. Those are all wonderful choices in my mind. Of course, for me, there is no bad Bond movie. My first Bond movie was Goldeneye. Uh, my next like three were more movies. So it took me a while to get to Sean Connery. So I'm, I'm kind of like you guys. This one was early for me. This was probably the third one I got to uh, for A View to a Kill. So, uh, Goldeneye was my first Bond movie I saw in, in the theater. Same. James Bond travels the world and goes to some inspiring locations. Which Bond location would you most want to travel to, Luke? Hmm. Great question. Very tough. Uh, I would say scenes perhaps from Russia, like Moscow and Goldeneye, would be a solid choice. I've always wanted to travel to Russia. actually. Cause I'm... Drive with a tank through the middle of town? <laughs> right, that'd be great. I'm, I'm Russian in descent, so... Or maybe also bringing up the ski thing again, being an avid skier. Locations like the world is not enough. Is that uh, Ukraine or somewhere out there like with all these drastic mountains or the base jumping scene of Spy Who Loved Me? be awesome. I have say. a feeling Brian's going to say a skiing answer. Brian, am I right on this one? If you could visit a Bond location, any one that you would do? But no, the one, the place that Bond makes looks so freaking glamorous and I've always wanted to go pretty much based on bond movies is monaco that's a that's a nice choice yeah that is a great choice let me ask you this what's your favorite roger moore bond movie 
Luke? I could bring up how Russell and I first started um, knowing that we were Bond fans. Uh, we, as I said before, we worked together. Uh, I had created a spreadsheet in an attempt to figure out which Bond film was our ultimate favorite because we always had a hard time establishing which Bond film was our favorite and why. I uh, created this list that uh, had all the film's possible entries for rows, and all the columns included different items such as best opening sequence, best theme, best theme song, best bad guy, best bad girl, best chase scene, and best ending scene. So a lot of all these categories, and at, in each one of those, we would list our like favorite scene. And actually, it turned out I would not have guessed it if you would ask me what is my favorite Bond film. But *A View to a Kill* was very high up there. Opening sequence, uh, given the ski scene, uh, Bond girl May Day, she's just a badass, and um, yeah, it ranked very high with the theme song as well. All right, what about you, Brian? Uh, favorite Bond, favorite Bond film would probably, uh, favorite Roger Moore would be Spy Who Loved Me, uh, pretty much hands down, uh, with the closest second would probably be Man with a Golden Gun. Yeah. Luke, like, who's your favorite Bond? I like Pierce. That's, that's a tough question, but I'm, I'm a big Pierce Brosnan fan. He's, I believe his movies are very underrated and he's an underrated Bond. And I can say as a... It's a gay man. He's secure, uh, securely. He he's the most classically handsome of the Bond actors. Yes, Daniel Craig is fit. He's a muscly, tough guy with good looks. But I wouldn't say he's necessarily classically handsome. If that makes sense. Sure. Not as much as Pierce. Yeah, and Pierce also has that ability to deliver those charismatic, witty, those often sexual innuendos throughout his movies, like his banter with Money Penny and Xenia on a top and Golden Eye. Uh, I just I like his banter in that way. His punches are less believable as Daniel Craig. You know, he's not like that tough guy. Uh, but that kind of wasn't his style, in my opinion. Brian, who's your who who's your number one Bond? I I think Pierce Brosnan is the quintessential Bond. I think Goldeneye is basically a perfect Bond movie for me. Uh, it would hands down be my top. Uh, I feel bad for Pierce because. I think I truly think he's the best Bond, and he got the worst hand dealt to him in movies. Like I would love to see him put in really any of the Bond roles for any of those movies to see his panache added to it. Because man, I just I still watch bad quote unquote bad Pierce Brosnan Bond movies just because like he does everything he can to save it. It's just a bad script or. I don't know. It's just, I, I feel bad for the guy. I, I am going to go with the classic Sean Connery answer because he kind of defined the role, but I, I absolutely do love Pierce Brosnan. And we are all showing probably our age. It's, I think people who are a lot younger than us or who are a lot older than us are probably and they're going like, what? But uh, I also love Pierce Brosnan as well. So again, there's, there's no bad bond. Although Daniel Craig's my least favorite of them. I'm, 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 now, now, now people are really mad at me. I'd say Daniel Craig. He was, he was like my third favorite on the list roger moore being second but roger moore he it's just his his movies make him better right it's yeah i definitely think roger moore got the best hand dealt to him for for film find for, him like, film. sexy in the least bit hmm. especially in the last half of his roles but he he can't deliver those witty innuendos like pierce right it feels so forced from him though 
<laughs> like he does it in a way he he does it in a way where I'm like, oh god, I need a shower after that. <laughs> so true. Well, as we alluded to, we're doing 1985's A View to a Kill. This is the number 14th movie for the 007 franchise. It grosses 50 million dollars and had a budget of about 30 million dollars, and it places in the box office that year at 10th. So it did quite well. Not quite as well as the last round with Octopussy, but it is still a very strong showing. For the franchise here and uh it comes in on the box office behind fletch and ahead of national lampoon's european vacation so roger moore is in a chevy chase sandwich here the number one movie from 1985 was back to the future now the imdb rating is not so kind to a view to a kill it gives it a 6.4 and even less kind or the critics of rotten tomatoes giving it a 36 percent uh, and the audience score giving it a 40 percent Tanya Roberts was nominated for a Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Actress. She lost to Linda Blair, who was uh, in Night Patrol. And this is the only Bond film that has the distinction of being placed on the Siskel and Ebert's Worst Movie of the Year list. Siskel, in particular, never cared for anything Roger Moore did. So as we get into this, this is perhaps underappreciated. Luke, you've clearly seen this one before. What was your background with it? And tell people what it's like coming back to it today. Uh, I, I personally love rewatching this from the nostalgia of watching it as a kid. One thing, like the 80s fashion being back in style now, the movie is less ridiculous fashion-wise that, that I see, that I used to think. So that's kind of coming back into style. Like Mayday, she had those ridiculous outfits in her hair, but that's kind of morphed back into style. So it's in that way, it's held up. Is the action still look good, or is this something you still really enjoy coming back to? In terms of all the various Bond movies themselves, is this one that you go back for often? It is, yeah. Okay. And as far as like action sequences, I think it it holds itself up there. There are many different variations of the action scenes between like horse chases and the Parisian Eiffel Tower chase scene to the end. Uh, coal mining scene it's there there's a lot of variation to it and it's it's a lot of good fun yeah brian what was your background with a view to a kill and how is that changing coming back to it today this is one of the first bond movies that i really like watched into the ground i want to say it went into probably the late 90s before i had finished watching every bond movie um just because you'd watch like the 007 days of christmas or something like that Mm -hmm. and you'd always catch the same films like it was so weird for you to get like a random for your eyes only or uh, octopussy or there were just a couple i felt like they cherry picked out of it and i will say i do think the 80s was was a rough decade for bond i i'm by far my least fond bond movies are in that in terms of plot um but you know i'm looking at roger moore's whole battery here now and it's really a tale of two decades because he's got these seventies ones that were fantastic. And then he's got these eighties ones that are like, meh. So, uh, yeah, I think he definitely had to, uh, bridge, um, bridge a gap and, and it kind of fell off for him toward the end. Yeah. Roger's interesting in that way. Not everybody sticks around long enough so that you see the times change around them as, as greatly and as pronounced as it did with Rogers. So that's a very interesting point that you bring up with that. 
As I mentioned, this was early in my Bond watching history. I got this around age 13, and uh, I got a later start than you get with James Bond. I rented this one from a rental store with my friend, Matt Manahan, who you can hear him on the Indiana Jones uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark podcast, and we had a great time with it. We really enjoyed walking, and you know we were just uh, we were having a great time. And somehow, when you watch a movie with another fan, maybe that solidified it. I maybe it's just because I got to it early, but I I have always liked this one, and I remember being it was even after college. I got I got around to hearing people kind of knocking this movie, and I was like, wait, you don't like that one? And then I looked online, and these reviews and stuff were there of not being as strong as the other rest of the Bond movies, and I was sitting there going like. Oh, I never realized there was this dissenting attitude towards it. If you might say that against something like, you know, Die Another Day, I might understand that. But I never thought this one was pulling up the back of the rear by any means for me. So I I actually continue to like it more and more over time. It's probably one of the ones I've watched. It's probably in my top five Bond movies for rewatch, the number of times I've seen it. I want to add something to that just because um, I want to make it perfectly clear that I'm a fan of all the Bond movies. So I'm going to give you guys my critique of things as intellectually as possible, but don't make any negative thing I say does not mean that I wouldn't watch them end to end in one sitting. If somebody was like, here, you have time to do this. So there isn't a bad, like, Oh, you'd be nailing me to a chair to get me to watch this Bond movie. They're all watchable. Just there are ones I prefer over others. Yeah, yeah. There, there is no attack of the clones within the Bond world. <laughs> However, they were slower in the beginning, like the Sean Connery ones. They define the style and this, like, the spy type of movie. But you know, like Doctor No definitely has like some slow scenes, and it's it's not as action packed as the newer ones. But you kind of have to respect that, given the era, given how they were defining a whole movement with the spy action hero. So. It's it's understandable. Bond totally responds to its time. It it's not right. It doesn't really aim to be a trendsetter. When science fiction was big, they made Moonraker. When you know drug movies were big, they made um, License to Kill. You know when they the Bourne Ultimatum came out, they rebooted it and brought Daniel Craig in and got real serious and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. Bond will continue to evolve and adapt. And it's that's to your point. I think that's one of the most interesting things about it is it's a nice little time frame for where we are, both in cinema as well as like culture, like fashion, cars, music. I mean, it captures so many pieces of culture and it, it's an excellent little time capsule. And because it's the same character and the same formula, but it's always done in a different with the differences of the time period and the differences of the actor. It's uh, it's really enjoyable in that way. I should warn people, we're going to spoil this movie. So as we go forward, there will be spoilers. So we will be back after these messages. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we miss, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals like you. 
What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. All right, this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. So, Brian, for those who haven't seen A View to a Kill since 1985, will you give people a refresher? So uh, in this one, we start off with Bond on a mission to retrieve a microchip, which kind of sets up the entire plot of this movie. This microchip then leads him to Zorin, played by Christopher Walken. Just a little uh, opinion piece here. Has there ever been a Bond movie with a more insane villain than Christopher Walken? Like, if there's a superlative for this, dude, I Walken in this is amazing. It's great. Zorin is basically flaunting his uh, KGB powers. He was a test tube baby, spawned out of a World War II program to make smarter, stronger children. And he's using those powers for evil, as most Bond villains do. He is uh, basically using microchips at this point to uh, fix horse races, but he also has his fingers in a lot of different pies, including oil drilling and silicone. The driving portion of this movie is Bond trying to figure out what his master plan is. And that ends up being that he plans to detonate twin fault lines around the San Andreas region to drown Silicon Valley, putting the computer-based companies that he is invested in on top. And he's also in the process extorting said computer companies for $100 million each in order to do this culminating in uh, him basically betraying his uh, closest number two and then fighting James Bond himself on top of the Golden Gate Bridge in a pretty awesome fight scene, really, for the time. And uh, Bond prevailing. Wonderful recap there. So, Luke, every Bond movie has a villain. Let's start off by what do you think of Max Zorin as a villain? I really like how he was the product of Nazi genetic experimentation from scientists at concentration camps. Like that's like a an activity that definitely happened in uh, history during World War II. And Zorn was said to have a mother who was injected with those altered steroids, and he was the product baby of that. And he was also just exceptionally psychotic. Um, I kind of think that could realistically happen <laughs> in a in a weird, twisted world. But in a way, I I like that. It's it's in its very third right to try to make like the dominant race so in, in a way it's a very cool twist on a realistic historical event and he's very third reich himself i mean he's he's a he poster boy for it uh he doesn't sound russian at all though that's true well, yeah. well they said he speaks five languages with no accent well i don't know about the no accent part christopher walken you get him you get an accent and those pauses when he speaks oh absolutely but less less so in this movie yeah Mayday is the henchman here. This is kind of one of the standout iconic henchmen as well, as you alluded to earlier, Luke. What do you think about Mayday? I love her. In the GoldenEye N64 game, I was like always Mayday for some reason. But uh, anyways, I she's Grace Jones, even as like a pop star. I've always liked her and her music. Uh, I guess during this time, uh, she was in Conan the Barbarian first. I believe this was her second film. And she really wanted to transition from music to movies. And she had, like I mentioned before, some incredible outfits and wardrobe. Just very 80s, kick-ass chick, in a way. Like, for example, when you first see her 
in a red and black gown at that horse race when you first see Zorin in, in Mayday. She's almost wearing like a Muslim hijab, that headscarf, like combined over a Shriner type hat. Just her outfits are just very over the top, but very fun at the same time. It's the first time we've seen a Bond henchman be a female who's a physical threat in that regard. Like we've seen female henchmen who are dangerous beauties, but not in the sense of, you know, she's been upgraded with these kind of clearly experimental thing uh, programs that uh, Zorn's doing. At one point, she picks up a guy completely over her head. I mean, that's just, it's not expected. You know, she's strong because Grace Jones, the actress is a very strong woman. But I mean, you didn't, you don't quite know how strong and you're just like, oh, this, she's like, She's like a superhuman. Right. And that's a pretty interesting thing to do, uh, making a woman a physical threat. Brian, did you like Mayday? I'm actually just, I can't get uh, the GoldenEye video game out of my head now. I was just thinking that there is a chance that if you snuck up behind me and played the noise for slappers only loud enough, it would actually startle me and make me turn around. (laughs) Just that. I remember that sound. (laughs) That'd be a great like text. And I was I was just like, oh god. Ah. So anyway, I probably have like some like underlying PTSD that if you played certain Goldeneye, we played that game so much that if you played certain sound effects, I'd be like, ah. Anyway, uh, Grace Jones, yes, absolutely phenomenal. I loved her as an actress. Uh, I, I I find her attractive. Um, she is uh, she's one of the best Bond henchmen. Uh, ever in fact if you had to go with a number two like bond villain or number one henchman hench person i think she would probably be my my 1a i can't get rid of jaws out of my top spot but she's right up there she's definitely on the mount rushmore of henchmen for me jaws was my number one bad villain in that spreadsheet i made and they both end up doing the right thing at the end right that's true he did well maybe almost has the the Xenia on a top like dominance is that oh, Funka Jensen oh, did as dude, well. That was a good one. Oh, that was, yeah, that's definitely top was, five. Yeah, I will break yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. Yeah. Yes, you can. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier when Mayday lifts up that guy, then throws him on the, throws him down against the wall. Do you ever see there that the actor who plays Rocky four is in that short scene? He makes a cameo. Dolph Lundgren, yeah, yeah, he's in he's in that scene, and actually, that. Grace Jones at the time was dating Dolph, and she wanted him to be in this movie, so he made like a she like pressed pressed the producers, and he made a ca- cameo. May your first child be a masculine child. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Well, this is his uh, first time in the movies, though, so this is his debut. So uh, this. This was his door opening for acting and getting other roles. So his Rocky role is to come still. Yeah. But you're right. He's a big dude and he would make a great henchman in his own right. Mm-hmm. I wonder if she, when they were dating, if she lifted him up over her head. and <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a power couple, right? I know. Now, one of the criticisms that I've seen is we have good villains. Both of them. Are, so nobody really came targeting either one of them but some people say that they didn't have much to do now i think that's a criticism where if you're gonna lobby that criticism you're gonna say that about pretty much most of the villains that you see in bond i feel like they got about as much to do as you usually get but 
Am I just being too much of a soft spot for this movie? Do you like the whole we're gonna we're gonna flood Silicon Valley by forcing an earthquake in order to dominate the chip market? Is this not working for you? Because there has been some criticisms lobbied towards this. I always thought it was peculiar that this plot was strikingly similar to the plot of the first Superman and Christopher Reeves and Gene Hackman as mm. Lex Luthor. And with the yeah. San Andreas fault, you know, Lex Luthor wanted to blow that up and have half of California just sink off in the Pacific and he'd suddenly own all this beachfront property. So it was strikingly similar to that, but kind of different in a way. Yeah, so it ends up in a fight on the Golden Gate Bridge instead of uh, James Bond running around the world super fast and reversing time. It's true. Yeah. Um, but I, I dig the plot. It's gaining a personal fortune can make you do crazy things, and he just wanted to dominate his own field. And what way better way to do that than just get rid of an entire region that was dominating the uh, manufacturing of computer chips at that time? Yeah, yeah. It's not the craziest Bond plot that we've seen as i would say i mean it's it's not a, honestly tomorrow never dies uh i'm gonna start a global war so i can get exclusive media rights to it i'm just <laughs> like exclusive media rights that's I yeah mean, that was pretty rough too <laughs> you're gonna yeah. play puppets with governments to get news stories <laughs> i mean just think about the synopsis here there was something about bond movies where i need at least four locations Four independent, could be different countries, different locales. Like, I'm not saying every Bond movie needs to be that formulaic, but I like seeing Bond have to track someone down. I think my biggest complaint about this movie is you have your opening sequence, which I don't count. Then you have him go to the horse stables, and then he's in America in San Francisco, and that's it. Like, there's... No, Paris. He goes to Paris. Oh, right. And then, I'm sorry. There was there was yeah. yeah one. But that was like that was France. In... It was Paris, and then to the chateau, which is outside of Paris. It, it, I just it wasn't enough. I I I feel like what what gets lost in this movie is the lack of movie on this one. Like there's really like what usually makes Bond movies is the chase. There there's a lack of chase in this Bond, and that's my biggest issue with the plot. I think Walken's a great villain. He's got a great henchman. I think Moore does what Roger Moore does, and that's fine. And then, but like the the thing, the inherent thing that makes a rich Bond movie or makes a Bond movie rich is that that chase, that sense of he has to follow this bread you know crumb trail. And I don't know how you guys feel about this, or maybe you haven't even thought about it, but I find that if a Bond movie happens in America, it's not as good. Gold Goldfinger. Well, I mean, it's not just there, but okay. I mean, I guess it culminates there, and this one culminates here. But about half the movie happens here. I feel like when it becomes U.S. domestic, it loses something. I want that mystique that I've never been there, so something is inherently dangerous about it. And when he comes here and you're like, oh, it's San Francisco, Dirty Harry will help him. Yeah, I see where you're coming from on that one. I, I enjoy, San Francisco is a cool enough city where I feel I'm okay with this. But I, I do see where you're coming from on that one. He's been to like, I feel like he's been to Miami. He's been to Fort Knox. He's he's done a few things. The Hoover Dam. You know, he's done he's done some cool stuff here yeah. in America. But uh, uh, they usually come to engage with certain landmarks. The city hall was 
to me pretty cool to see that in San Francisco. But uh, maybe maybe as an architect, I just like the city of San Francisco and I'm giving it a pass on that one. But I, I totally get what you're saying. Like it, it is enjoyable to go globe trotting, And other than Paris and, and the snowy beginning, you're right. There might be one note fewer than you're used to. Even though it's a two hour, 11 minute movie, like it's a longer Bond movie than sometimes you have. Some some people have complained about its length, which I'm not bored at any point, so I'm okay with that. No, and same. Like, at no point in time am I like, oh, this is dragging, because he's still doing Bond things in these locations. I just, I've always enjoyed the, now I've got to go to Mexico City. Now I have to go to Brazil. Now, you know, like, him really tracking stuff down, following down leads, like, oh, in Brazil, I had to seduce this girl. And then I had to go to Kiev and seduce that girl. Now I've got the bad guy. Like, it's just, again, I'm not arguing to make things formulaic, but I will say that they hit on a formula that was working, and this one deviates from it, and I think it doesn't help the film. Well, he does a lot more loving and a lot less killing in this movie. If you actually look at it, he doesn't actually shoot anybody unless you count like the rock salt shot that uh, stacy has in her house so he doesn't actually shoot anybody oh i never realized that and he also beds four women in this one so that's got to be one of the higher tallies normally the normally it's more like two maybe even three but like it's four this time so he's he's a lover not a fighter i have really really uh enjoyed the way that daniel craig has very slowly and subtly crept away from the womanizing in recent bond movies like it's like the homer meme where he fades into the bushes to the it's, just, it's one of those like all right we're 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 not we're not messing with this part anymore like it's not that he doesn't sleep with anybody but the outward like i'm naked in your bed right now come on in i mean this is kind of i guess this is one of the inherent problems i have with roger moore is he's just he's, he he does this like uncle who won't say no kind of thing and i it just <laughs> he, he, he creeps me out more than any like i'm not saying that sean connery didn't do some 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 questionable stuff he was the one who used the magnet watch to unzip a woman's dress from behind so I, I uh, just more like more actually like he makes if I were in a room with him in the 70s, I would have been uncomfortable. OK, I, 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 I think Connery has the more forceful scenes that make me cringe the most. I today completely make, agree with that. that. Make you go. I, you, nope, like, I, Sean Connery is the one who makes you kind of go like, yeah, like when you're showing that to your kid, Ugh, it's just like, hey, uh, that's, that's not, not the okay. way you should do that. Yeah. Like, don't do that. <laughs> um, that's not OK. Yeah, I mean, Moore, Moore has never choked somebody out with a bra strap, but... But to your point, though, there's a woman who's producing the movies now, too. Barbara Broccoli, the daughter of Cubby Broccoli, has taken over the production, so, I mean, the series is going to, in its attitude towards women, is not only going to change with the times, but also by who's the, you know, creative force behind it. Yeah, I I don't know. It's I think that's my underlying issue with Moore, is, is I don't want creepy Bond, and he creeps me out. I think Moore's the suave Bond, and I think this movie fits him because it's got the horseback riding, the skiing, you know, there's a sense of, like, kind of going undercover and I'm going to be a reporter. Like, there's a there's a smoothness to Roger Moore that this movie's storyline very much suits him. I, they, they made this movie for Roger, and it fits him so well. I think that every Bond brings a swagger to the role. So I'm not 
denying that. Connery was was more like you said, he was more forceful. And I mean that in every way, not just in his um, interactions with women. Moore is just slimy. Like he has a very slimy way of doing it. And I think that's what detracts from him. I don't know. But then like, yeah, is it it his age, Brian? Do you feel the same way? Like in earlier films, like Spy Who Loved Me and Man with the Golden Gun? Do, Do these feel that way to you? I feel like it definitely got worse over time. But again, I've already, you know, like I said, the 80s Bond movies are by far my least favorite. So it could just be a a decade thing. I don't know. But when Brosnan does it, it's like, oh, Pierce, of course. Like, you know, it's charming. It's it's sexy. Like when Moore does it, it's uh, gross. It's not what you're saying. It's not as upsetting if he's more attractive then. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe i maybe that is what i'm saying maybe maybe it's just that Brosnan or you know daniel craig you know craig is witty like i feel like his difference is he's not he's not there for the sex i think all the other bonds were there for the sex as well as getting the job done daniel craig is just like i could i'm gonna save the day might end up happening but it's not a focal point of those movies. So each of them have, have brought a cockiness, a, a measure of uh, varying degrees of masculinity to the role. And, and Moore's has just always creeped me out. Like even at a young age, before I could put a finger on it, he, he creeped me out a little bit. Well, I think one of the things that you might be getting and Luke touched on, it's got to be talked about. Roger Moore is actually 57 years old. Now, I think he looks younger than Sean's 52 when Sean Connery was doing his final movie of the canon movies, but I am not as turned off by it. Obviously the stuntmen are very obviously stuntmen because Roger's not moving around at 57 like that, but uh, it is an issue for a lot of people. And he apparently was uncomfortable himself in finding out that Tanya Roberts's mother was younger than he was. And that was his leading lady who he was paired with. And so, so, Oh man. Yeah, I mean, she was thirty at the time, but yeah, you're right. That's just it's a little much. He also had oh. a facelift for this movie, and there's a mole on his, uh, I think, the left side of his face that he had removed before this as well. Oh, so you're maybe right. That's, there's no mole. No mole right there. So he, maybe that's why you think he doesn't look fifty-seven properly, even though it's a '80s facelift. But yeah. I- <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say he it's it's a good fifty-seven. I mean, like I said, Sean Connery, we had a toupee on, and it was blatantly obvious and stuff like that i'm gonna give more more credit for for aging better in the role and he was him to his credit that said i think it's time to hang it up the producers felt like it was up to roger and they didn't tell him to stop doing it and even john glenn the director said i think roger had two more movies left in him and roger said you know when it seems like there are no more actors who can knock me over that you can cast in the role like it's getting harder to find the actor who will be the, you know, old enough for me to knock over. And when the women, as he pointed out, or their mothers are younger than I am, I, then it's time to walk away. So this was his final movie. And uh, some people feel like it was maybe one too many. So I don't hear these criticisms levied towards Octopussy, but the age difference is more pronounced here. It's weird. Uh... Sean Connery was younger than Roger Moore. I don't know if you guys know that. Yes, he was. Sean Connery was born in 1930, and Roger Moore was born in 1927. 
So to be done with an actor like Sean Connery, who was terrific as Bond, and then not go with someone younger, just in case you wanted to make seven films like they did. It's an interesting choice by well, Sean, production. Sean Connery and Diamonds Are Forever was, was, I think, at the point where he was going into the cocoon to make his metamorphosis into the Sean Connery that we all knew for the rest of his life. Because he went in, you know, this full head of dark hair, you know, maybe gaining a little bit of weight into Diamonds Are Forever. And then I swear overnight he became Entrapment Sean Connery, the rock Sean Connery. Like he he literally sprang from that cocoon a different actor than he went in. And, you know, they used him in different parts and still action movie, maybe even still a spy. But he was a different he was not Bond anymore. And, uh, and, and it, he's one of those great actors where I could, yeah, I, f- I feel like I could point at like one year where I'm like, and they flipped a switch and he was changed <laughs> and it's been a, it's a weird thing. It's a really weird thing, it's weird. but he also stayed that age for 50 years. Like he did that Sean Connery for another, you know, it's like, ah, he's the same guy. It's funny. Roger is somewhat self-critical at times for his time and bond, but he's the most critical he says towards this one. This is his least favorite bond movie that he made as well as the product that came out. He had a genuine dislike of Grace Jones. The two of them did not get along. So their chemistry on stage was forced, but there there apparently was um, kind of this, uh, they were adversarial in the making of this one. So uh, there was one scene where they're in the bed together and Grace Jones liked to, you know, poke fun at uh roger for being old which uh he he didn't love and then uh so she put a very large dildo in bed and uh he reached over to grab her arm and he came across and there was a very large uh black dildo in his hand and uh, he was super embarrassed and being more uh, quite gentlemanly he didn't care for that and she was like laughing at him and um these things honestly sound pretty funny but um you know roger roger was not a fan of dealing with grace jones apparently so uh that'd be great like behind the scenes i i want to see oh my god i want to give a hats off to the I don't know how everybody in the world doesn't just, I mean, I'm sure you lose your job for that. So, I mean, I'm sure all these people have a good, you know, poker face, but Oh my God, if that had happened, I would be on the floor, like crying, laughing. It would be amazing. I hope that would happen in today's day too. Yeah. Right. I think, I think the nice final touch would be to then take it and then go hand it to somebody in the film crew and be like, thanks for letting me borrow that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs> <laughs> just just pick like the shyest most random person and just be like appreciate it thanks dave <laughs> <laughs> now uh some interesting casting comments david bowie was actually offered the part of max Zorn. he turned down the role in favor of one that he did in the labyrinth which is kind of an iconic role for him so it worked out okay kind for him of. but bowie later explained that he thought the movie script was terrible and uh workmanlike and he didn't want to do it uh but hey it worked out in the end. Christopher Walken was their first Oscar winner to come into the franchise. So he loved the Bond movies as a kid. He was excited to take the role and to come into this one. So also Rucker Hauer from Blade Runner, that actor there, uh, he was considered as well as Lee Van Cleef for the role of Max Zorn. So a lot of good choices here, but I, I like I like that they landed on Walken. So it's a lot of good choices here. Uh, I heard you Sting happy was with- considered as well. You know what? Yeah, I've heard that as well. Yeah, that one that one is 
the least exciting of these candidates yeah. that I've heard, but um, yeah. Tanya Roberts got her part uh, after being in the Beastmaster from 82. Cubby Broccoli said that she had the right look, and that was a big part of getting these roles, <laughs> having the producer be like, hmm, yes, she's the right look for the part, so. James! Yeah. My, my, you look vulnerable. Well, she's a strong, she's a stronger Bond woman. It's one of those things that it's interesting that you mentioned their, the role has changed slowly over time. The Bond girl has changed over time as well. She's not necessarily um, fighting back as much as say women later, like Halle Berry do or, or Ava Green uh, and stuff like that. But I think that she's at least she's smart. She's in like she's the one, you know, uncovering the plot and telling James like this is his plan with the earthquake. I see where this is going. Like, and Roger Moore's like the total know-it-all Bond. Like, I mean, you know, at the beginning, like he yeah, like Roger Moore was always the guy. Like in the beginning, when they would brief everything, he'd like put everybody to shame. He's like, well, actually, these diamonds are from Africa, and (laughs) or like, well, that butterfly is from South America, and the only tributary that has these. And it's just like he's a walking encyclopedia, but uh, in this case, Stacy's able to help him along. Except in the kitchen. Well, that's another thing. <laughs> I was going to say they 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 were being progressive there as well, and saying uh, she doesn't have to go cook for him. It's okay for him to cook for her. I don't think it's been a mar. I think it's more prevalent now to have a stronger woman lead, but I think it was something that's existed in bonds basically since the beginning. I mean, you had Agent Triple X in Spy Who Loved Me. Um, there have been consistently uh, stronger female, I, I don't want to say accomplices, but, you know, sidekicks and, and helpers or, or even villains, you know, throughout Bond. It just happens to be more prevalent now. Judy Dench is M. We talk about a power woman. Oh, God, oh, I love yeah. Judy Dench. Uh, She's great. Yeah, Tanya Roberts, I think sometimes she, I don't think she's deserving of that Golden Raspberry Award. I mean, it, it is a it is a role of a Bond girl. Like most of them don't go on to have great careers. And uh, I also want to point out we just lost uh, uh, Tanya Roberts. She just recently died. So sad to lose her. She was not only the Beastmaster and Stacey Sutton and here in uh, this movie, but uh, she was also Midge from that 70s show. Oh, wow. I didn't know she passed. Yeah, yeah, and she was Charlie, and she was in Charlie's Angels too. So she's one of Charlie's Angels. So she's so she's been in some tough girl roles herself. So I'll admit I don't don't really know much about her from before this. Like when I see her face, I only think of this movie. Uh, this is probably to me what I think of first, but I'm a big Bond fan. Yeah, although I still think it's pretty funny to have her, uh, and oh gosh, I forget the other character's name in that '70s show that she's married to. They're really good next door neighbor characters in that. Um, I just, I mean, I definitely want to hammer home that, that Walken was maybe one of the most iconic Bond villains for me. And, and, and really, I think that if you had had someone, I mean, Ruger Howard probably do a good job too, but, it, or David Bowie, I'd love to see Bowie or would have loved to see Bowie as a Bond villain at some point in time. Um, I just, I, I don't know when I think of like Christopher Lee and, and and walking and there's just certain people that I'm like gosh you were just kind of made to be a bad guy and when you do it when I see you at work doing the evil it's just like ah oh, awesome this, this is this is yeah he's good thank you for doing that believable I just, I, yeah 
on the rewatch of this, and this is probably the first time I've rewatched this particular Bond movie in over a decade, I couldn't believe how much I didn't pick up on how evil he is. I don't think I've seen Sociopath played so well, I guess is the best way to put it. Like, you could see in his eyes he cared for nothing and no one. He exuded, like, you knew there was no humanity there. I, I don't know. I don't remember ever seeing another movie seeing someone play that role so well of someone who's just lacks empathy utterly. Absolutely. And I, I think that he has a, a equally evil-looking father figure or doctor figure who, who goes around with him, Dr. Carl Montour. I want to give a shout-out to the character Willoughby Gray. He's like hanging out over his shoulder going like good beast. Like it just, Oh man, it was so weird. You're like, ah, look at what I have created. <laughs> he was like Frankenstein's creator in a way. Absolutely. Oh yeah. The monocle, everything. Uh, and if you want to see him in a more friendly role, then uh, he's the King and princess bride as well. That's right. Got to bring up how there are two Indiana Jones connections in this movie. The lady who plays Jenny flex, Allison Duty, and yeah. she's the she's the KGB agent who's uh, Mayday's assistant in *A View to a Kill*. She's also she also plays the role as Elsa on *Last Crusade*. Yeah, big part there. Yeah. yeah. Also, a little tidbit about that scene, as you recall, she's it's in San Francisco, I believe, when Roger Moore goes into her apartment, or maybe it's a hotel. They get in the hot tub, and she tries to steal that microchip. Mm-hmm. That was totally spoofed in Austin Powers with a lot of vagina. Yeah. <laughs> that was like almost like scene for scene with that. You know, they wanted to bring Barbara Bach back from the spy who loved me. And that Russian agent was supposed to be her from, from the spy who loved me, but Barbara Bach didn't want to do it again. So they kind of just changed it to this character, Ivana and, uh, Fiona Fullerton got the role instead, but I really would have liked to see the crossover, the return from the Spy Love Me come back in with Barbara Bach. That would have been fun. But I mean, wasn't the whole mole gag from Austin Powers about like a, a jab at Roger Moore? I didn't take it that way, but it's possible. When I first saw you know that gig, I was like, oh, they're so making fun of Roger Moore right now because it is. It's just like mole, mole, <laughs> right. oh, yeah. mole. <laughs> another fun connection for another british fun uh series is so the avengers has patrick mcnee in here he plays sir godfrey or tibbet in here and i love this character because he's an undercover agent but uh, he ends up portraying a servant and driver to lord sinjin smythe and i i love how roger's comedic sensibilities come through as he doesn't waste he doesn't miss a single opportunity to like stick it to his uh his co-agent who's like helping him out with this investigation but by like telling him like why don't you get the car my good boy and hurry up with those bags now and don't drop them and i i i loved he's totally just talking down to his servant person like especially on that tape it's just like probably hours of just talking down to the guy for like the disguise. <laughs> I don't think that that's a, uh, uh, an across deal. I think that that guy is, is more important than bond. It was, it, he, he had a sir prefix. So I actually think he was a superior to bond. He just knew the, what, you know, he was a, uh, an expert in the whole horse chemistry piece. 
And because they needed Bond being the face of it, he got to play the rich guy. And the reason he kept sticking it to him so much is because, you know, British aristocracy, he, he was actually above Bond. Good point. So both Avengers got into Bond because Diana Rigg was on Your Majesty's Secret Service. And uh, so Patrick McNee comes in here. And so that's a fun connection as well, much like those Indiana Jones connections you were calling out, Luke. The other Indiana Jones uh, connection is the actor David Yip, who plays Chuck Lee, uh, another MI6 agent in A View to a Kill. He He appears very briefly in the beginning of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh, nice. At the You're Obi-Wan right. Club in Shanghai, just after Kate Capshaw sings Anything Goes, when they're dining at the table with that Chinese mafia boss, Lao Shea. He's, the, he's Indiana Jones' like savior with the gun, who ends up getting shot with all those champagne bottles going off. Nice. A very small role. He's just like, he's right there. I always think of that when I see him in, in his very small role in, his, in A View to a Kill. Now, as we go into the director here, John Glenn is a veteran of Bond movies. He gets to do one, two, three, four, five. So John Glenn is, directs five Bond movies. This is his third one of them. So he's coming off of For Your Eyes Only and Octopussy. And this is his last one with Roger Moore. And he does both Timothy Dalton movies. So these 80s movies that you're not a fan of, Brian, John Glenn is pretty much the driver through this era at, in the director's seat. What is it that uh, you like about John Glenn? Because you kind of have alluded to these, this, some of the parts that you don't like, but what's working for you from John Glenn? I mean, the, the franchise doesn't fall apart, so at least he kept the engine running. I, I literally think you just named like my bottom third of Bond movies. Just, <laughs> I, I didn't realize it was all the same director. I'm glad I could, I, I'm glad I could put a name to this now. <laughs> yeah so john glenn might not be your favorite director then uh other movies that he has directed which aren't many more beyond this are checkered flag uh christopher columbus the discovery and the point men uh but uh he's mostly known for his bond work uh here and he is an editor on her majesty's secret service too so he goes back to that one too it's uh it, now it is interesting though to to i have never really paid attention to who directs a bond movie like this is kind of an epiphany piece right now where I don't think I've ever been like, oh yes, blah 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 is directing this Bond movie. It's I just totally it's agree. a Bond movie. I expect a certain degree of bondliness from it, and if I don't get it, then maybe I do look a little deeper into it. But no, I've never looked too deeply at who directs a Bond movie. Oh, it's become more prestigious now with people like Sam Mendes and stuff like that, grabbing them now. Sure. At the time, I don't know that it was as hot of a directorial cast to get, but uh, yeah. Well, the reason I think it's so interesting is because I ravenously wait for who's doing the song. Yeah. But give no, but give no, but give no credence whatsoever. Okay, great. It's, you know, it's happening. That's what I need. To some degree, the producers are more involved with the bond production, the broccoli family, and the director has less, creative vision so the producers own the own all the rights and whatnot so they're very protective with it and you're not going to veer too far from the formula especially while cubby or albert broccoli was his real name when cubby broccoli was alive you knew what you were going to get into there was a comfort in returning to the formula again luke how is it for you in terms of john glenn's direction on his run there again for your eyes only through license to kill i had to agree with brian it's 
I really never gave two looks at who directed or edited these movies, especially growing up. I it was only focused on the actors, the plot. It was just, and there, like he said, it, there was a similarity between the styles, and you better have that style. And most of them did. The era that he directed, Free Your Eyes Only, I'm a big fan of, especially the Lotus in that, the Red Lotus with the ski rack. Mm-hmm. It's got to be my. Actually, that's my dream car. Wow. To be able to like drive like a, have like a supercar, like a sports car, but also have a ski rack on it. That's like kick ass in my, in my world. So small nuances. You can give me a DB5 if, if, if we're going to go down this road. So. <laughs> Classic the dream car, I'll say. I was sitting there thinking, man, I bet that's rear wheel drive. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's interesting that. John Glenn kind of gets control of the series as you're running out of Fleming content, too. So the earlier movies have Ian Fleming books. And by the time that you're in the late Moore run and the, all of the Timothy Dalton run, they are going through stuff that didn't get produced, short stories. And actually, A View to a Kill was from A View to a Kill. And it was a title of a story of a French shedding and some Russian spies are the only common story elements from that, from a short story that was done for Fleming and they're running out of stuff. So they, to your point though, Brian, it's not just necessarily John Glenn. You're completely removed from the original visionary of what James Bond is. So that may or may not make a difference as well. I'd like to take this time to make my uh, traditional book plug here. Uh, Read Ian Fleming by all means. But uh, if you want a uh, interesting argument and dichotomy, read Ian Fleming as he uh, is compared to John Le Carre. Uh, he also writes spy novels and is genuinely considered to be the most honest spy novel author as he used to be one. So people typically look at Bond as this, you know, this is what, you know, spying is like a lot of people have held that up as this is what Hollywood thinks spying is like this other guy. And they've made a a constant gardener was him. Tinker Taylor, soldier spy. They've made a a plethora of movies off of John Le Carre's work too. Just not in the same, you know, hierarchy like bond is. And I think it's, it's worth noting here in the, uh, in the bond verse that uh, he's got this almost rivalry going on with the different fans. Yeah, and I want to give John Glenn credit. He adapts his movies to who his Bond is because he straddles tenures. He has both of Timothy Dalton's movies and he has the later half of Roger Moore's run. And so when you get to Timothy Dalton's movies, they're gritty, they're completely changed their tone. They're they're a lot more serious. Gone are the ways of the joking and stuff like that. So John Glenn is not somebody who is so stylistic where like this is a John Glenn movie, he's gonna do it the John Glenn way. He adapts not only to what the Broccoli's are asking from him, but also from who his bond is. And I wanna give him credit on that one because this I, I mentioned it earlier, this feels like a well-fitting glove for Roger Moore. And I'm going to overlook the age issues that we talked about earlier. So to me, it feels like it's a good fit for Roger Moore. And I'm going to credit that with John Glenn. And he's updating the times well. I mean, we talked about how the Bond girl was treated differently. I mean, the fact that Bond was cooking and stuff like that was kind of a funny jab. There was a book that was a hot book at the time called Real Men Don't Eat Quiche from 1980. So Bond was uh, 
being uh, breaking gender stereotypes or whatever by cooking and getting in there and eating quiche and so uh and he's still the coolest dude that all the ladies want to be with and all the guys want to be so uh I got to give John Glenn credit to your point. He not only didn't keep the lights on and keep the engine running, I think that he, without proper evolution of it, at any given point, Bond could have shut down, especially having run out of Ian Fleming content. And so credit to John Glenn for that. And, and yeah, I will completely cop to the fact that this is all editorial. I mean, I, it's what I, these are the movies I don't prefer and at no way, shape or form, even intellectually, I can tell you, I'm sure that this is probably somebody's wheelhouse. This is where someone lives with Bond. And that's awesome. It's just not me. Yeah. Speaking of fun people who are in the background, you were mentioning the Dolph Lundgren appearance there, Luke. Uh, did you catch Maude Adams in this movie? No. I'm... So Maude Adams is the Bond girl from The Man with the Golden Gun, and she is Octopussy herself. And so she's oh. repeated twice, and so she's in two Bond movies. So Maude Adams is in San Francisco during the filming of this movie, and so she is walking in the background on the San Francisco Fisherman's Wharf, and you can spot her there. So, oh, I never got down. Interesting. So she she has been in three Bond movies, and that's a record for that. So I like it. Yeah. That seems really subtle, though, but very, very interesting. Yeah. Like how, I don't know if you saw in Casino Royale, Richard Branson has a cameo in the Miami airport. He's like going through security. Like something really small, but that's that's cool. Now, Luke, location is such a big deal. And we touched on this a little bit earlier, but when you want to go through these locations and all the things that happen in them, I mean, Bond movies are written from the standpoint of where do we want to go and what kind of big stunt action things do we want to do? And then we'll write a whole story around that. So did you like the locations? Brian said that it might not have globetrotted enough for him, but take us through it for you. Well, let's start with like the opening ski sequence. I saw that it's filmed in both Iceland and I believe Switzerland, but... I think that that's appropriate for that scene and being an avid skier uh, and actually how I liked how um, they introduced this first time Bond like hit the snowboard. And I thought that was really cool how they they intro- they did that, like mixed in with that opening sequence. Uh, it could be due to the popularity with snowboarding becoming just as popular as skiing in the 80s, perhaps. But at the end, when he cruises down the hill goes over the pond but none of the skiers can that's just like typical bond like good at everything badass love that did, did you like the beach boys playing while that was happening uh it sets it <laughs> <laughs> not exactly no, no it's yeah you i don't know you go from like classic bond music till to this like tacky beach boy stuff but it does change the pace it kind of makes it cool i remember being a little kid getting excited about that like whoa he took off the front of the snowmobile and now he's just like cruising down the hills kind of it yeah there was there's a set of there's a moment of coldness to it but looking back now it's it's totally hokey if you hit mute and i just did this for this this run if you hit mute it's actually a really good ski scene and the going across the waters yeah like so uh, it's one of those rare moments of the music pulls you so far out of it in this moment. And uh, to me, that that was one of those one that was a head scratcher there. It's just like, yeah, Roger Moore is going to bring a little bit of humor to your movies, but I don't think the soundtrack needs to do that. So, Brian, did you like the skiing? We're towing dangerously close to a uh, distaste that I am very quiet about most of the time to not draw ire. So, uh, 
Uh, no, it's, it's a terrible song choice. It's just like, I'm not sure if they could have picked a worse song for that moment in a Bond movie. Please stick with your instrumental, like, you know, like, give, give me that all day long. Don't, no, don't plug a Beach Boys song. What are you doing? You know what? Next time Bond is uh, at a bar, just throw some Jimmy Buffett in there. It'll be fun. No, you're fired. Like, what? <laughs> like, like, come on, man. Uh, no. No, I think they did a great job when they went to Paris because they didn't just show the Eiffel Tower. They engaged with the Eiffel Tower. But uh, going with your Superman comparisons, Luke, is this is this reminiscent of Superman again? What, being in Paris? Well, the Eiffel Tower debacle because, like, Superman, like, lifts uh, up an yeah, elevator. Lifts... Right, and it goes through the top. That's yeah. right. Uh, I didn't connect that until just now. Uh, yeah, how about that? You're right. Totally. I wonder. No, good point. Could be. Bond reacts to what what's happening at the time. I guess I never realized it, but Bond might be reacting to Superman in this one, and that's okay. I, again, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, like Man with the Golden Gun is black exploitation, and you know, uh, sorry, Live and Let Die is black exploitation. Man with the Golden Gun's got the uh, martial arts movie stuff in it. So yeah, th- you're right. You've hit on something by by drawing that comparison. Am I allowed to say I love Knickknack? Yeah, sure. Like he's another one of my top probably top five henchmen. Nick Knack was a, that was a great henchman. I think that it's creepy. Some of the, I, I think some of the best bond villains have to be paired with their absolutely excellent henchmen. Like you need yeah. that one B like the muscle, the brain, the evil scientist, something like you need that one B person. And if you don't have that one B person, the movie suffers. And I think that's one of the reasons this movie didn't suffer as much as it could have is because the one a and one B were so good for sure. And back to the Eiffel tower, they actually jumped off of it, like did a face jump off of it. Now they didn't land on the boat. They jumped out of an airplane. And so the scene where the parachute stunt man is actually landing on that really awesome glass party boat that was one cut and the other cut was from somebody actually jumping off and they 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 had a hard time figuring it out because if your chute didn't deploy fast enough you'd you'd hit the steel down below because the eiffel tower gets bigger as it goes to the bottom so they had to do several they did 10 test jumps to make sure the chute could open up in time because it has to open up very quickly otherwise bad things will happen who are you um Test jumper number two. <laughs> the shot where you're, you supposedly see Mayday falling towards the camera right at the top of the Eiffel Tower, you could totally see there's like a plank up there, right? Like a base jump pirate ship type, like walk the plank. Like it totally comes out over where the, the Eiffel Tower would angle angle down. So they should have like just made that blue so you didn't see that because that's definitely not part of the Eiffel Tower. I wonder why they didn't try to edit that out. I've always noticed that. But they really did it to their credit. I'm wondering as we go forward, some of the things that, you know, Bond does, I think CGI is going to play a bigger and bigger role. Uh, you know, like in Skyfall, like Daniel Craig gets shot off of a giant bridge and falls down into the water. Obviously, they didn't do that. You know, in Siberia, like they actually made a submarine. You know, like they made a little boat that goes under there and it was like, 
only like a metal box and the guy was literally freezing in there and it was tiny and they had to open up the lid and like there was this exhaust pouring out and he couldn't like stay, stay he couldn't keep the lid closed but for so long in order to shoot that and you know they had miniature really elaborate very expensive miniature helicopters to actually blow up into the side of a snowbank that's not necessarily cgi but I, I think some of that stuff from this era looks good. I mean, I, I got to give it credit. The only, things that are making, the only things that make me sit there and go like, oh, well, that's obviously not the case. There's a couple of backdrop shots that happen in San Francisco when they're on the Golden Gate Bridge where it's like, I'm aware that's a backdrop. <laughs> and like, because they really do their stunts so much in these old Bond movies, gosh, so much respect for that. Absolutely. Agreed. Luke, were you as down in San Francisco as Brian, or did you enjoy this location? I enjoyed it, especially the uh, fire truck chase scene going up and down those hills and around the turns. That was that was that was good fun. Um, yeah, it's a little forced because like Roger Moore doesn't have to get out and drive the back part of the truck. Like he ends up, I, I really remember him dangling on the ladder. Yeah, but it's not utterly critical that he do that. But I'm still glad that they did it because it's awesome. Right, Brian fire truck jump across the drawbridge this is a problem for you um no no i mean the the car chasing was was good um maybe a little over the top but you know they're prone to this kind of embellishment in 80s movies anyway i just i don't see a uh, an actual spy ever choosing the fire truck as the the getaway vehicle so i don't know i just you know that's one of those like yeah it's bond I love the part where the uh, she's like, he's a reporter. He's like, actually, I'm a double O agent. Is he? <laughs> right. Wait, are you? Are you? You just told half of San Francisco, dude. I also thought it was funny that, that he was in the computer database, a 1980s pretty shoddy computer database for Zorn. It's just like, James Bond, extremely dangerous, often armed. and Double agent. <laughs> like, double O agent with license to kill. I'm like, what is this database that you have? You have floppy disks sitting behind you. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like the 80s Facebook or something. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the amazing set that they did for the underground scene, kind of reminiscent of some Indiana Jones Temple and the Doom stuff, and not coincidentally shot at the Pinewood Studios. Luke, did you like this part of the movie? I could have had without it, to be honest. Like, it... It's not something I think about when I think of a beautiful kill whatsoever. Even though it's part of the ending, it's like part one of the very ending before the Golden Gate Bridge. Especially all this shooting, and I, I guess like you can like hats off to Christopher Walken and being a sociopath, like shooting all the people, like all those all those guys who he just like guns down. It's 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 just a little much in my. Actually, Roger Moore said the exact same thing that you just said. So really, yeah, yeah, yeah. wow. So, and you're in good company. I just, yeah, I could just like have without that. But I do, I do like at the same time how this is when Mayday does a 180, and she turns good because she realizes, yeah, I like that redemption. Yeah, she becomes like the heroine, holding down that. So fun story. Pinewood Studios completely burns down during the 1984. Uh, production of the 1985 release of Legend. Brian, did you like that movie? Now, this is going to be one of those recurring bits where I'm just like, ah, yes, I didn't like something. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like every every year for the next like six years, it's always going to be a, a Roger Moore Bond movie, and they're going to be like, Fry, you don't <laughs> like Roger. He creeps you out. Uh, I don't know, man. Okay, okay. Yeah, so in that movie, that burned down their sound studio, so they actually had to reconstruct uh, a, an entire stage, sound stage, and when I say sound stage, it's a very large building, and they constructed on rapid, uh, accelerated pace to get this up, but they had to rearrange all the filming for this movie, and so they shot stuff in an unconventional or unplanned order, but, and they delayed two weeks out of it, but they still were $5 million under budget, so credit to John Glenn for for all of that so i mean you have a studio that's burned down and this is a very large set as you can tell i wonder if insurance money came into that (laughs) delay right yeah that's a good question Uh, the cars as we mentioned jenny flex drives a renault fugo turbo and in the 1962 rolls royce silver cloud 2 that's chauffeured by tippet that is albert broccoli's actual car of his own that is his rolls royce very cool. The same one that sinks. They put it, they they put it in a lake. We put your mm-hmm. car in the lake. Oh. <laughs> well, they weren't going to sink the producer's cars. Yeah, they weren't going to sink the producer's car, so they actually bought a, they they bought a, another one to actually sink, and they did well, put a Rolls Royce yeah. in the water. So that's not a miniature on that one. That was a good scene. How he comes out and breathes that air out of that tire, and still looks at. Mayday and Zorin above. I, I was so into that as a kid. I thought so, that you uh, could do that. I, me too. I remember this, that as a kid a, too. This is a good segue for this, but I, I was a huge fan of the TV show Alias uh, starring Jennifer Garner. And in it, Roger Moore actually plays a uh, clandestine. It's a bad guy. Uh, he was a bad guy in it, but another clandest, clandestine uh, uh, spy agency and not only that, but they use the tire air pressure breathing bit in the show. Hmm. Cool. I think this has unfortunately been myth busted on an episode of Mythbusters. <laughs> you cannot do this. When that that kind of hurt me a little bit when they found out. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh man, that was on my bucket list. Right. <laughs> Survive drowning <laughs> by breathing out of tire. <laughs> like... <laughs> I will say, I'll just I've always noticed that. Zoran's blimp changes like he has two different blimps like he has one that was with the big conference room right with the yeah. whole Silicon Valley and then you know, that one guy doesn't want to partake so he mayday gets him a drink slash makes him slide down and fall off the blimp that would be like a huge like office setup it's, you can totally tell going up to the Golden Gate that it's just this blimp with probably like 20 square feet the little cab yeah that's right. Yeah, that was the pocket-sized blimp. That was like a little trailer at the construction site. Good eye on that one. He he must have multiple blimps. Yeah, must have multiple blimps, which is pretty badass. Yeah. I wonder why more billionaires don't have like a conceptual blimp. Like I would have that, one. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like instead of having a yacht, make like a yacht in the air, like a blimp. I totally have that. That does that does sound pretty awesome, actually. Like yeah. Have like a party. If I, if I ever won a blimp, I would, and they were like, "Would you like it personalized?" Yeah, will you put Zorin across the side of it just to freak people out? Yes. They made the Zorin blimp look like the Fuji film blimp, so they could actually use the Fuji film blimp on long distance shots. And again, they used miniatures when the blimp was kind of far away, 
and then they used a mid-size blimp like a it's still a miniature blimp uh for the scenes where they were actually on like a miniature part of the golden gate bridge set that they had made at pinewood studios so there were multiple blimps used in the making of it too so wow way more blimp talk than i expected to get into no no blimps were harmed in the filming of this video luke you were talking about 80s fashion coming back what do you like in terms of the clothing here well, Mayday sticks out. She's a she's awesome. First, yeah, comes to mind. And going back to skiing, my brother actually bought a pair of sunglasses just because they were the round. They were like exactly like the round circular glasses that Mayday wears for skiing. Those pop in my my head. Her big leather coats, like the that bomber jacket that she wears when she's walking around the chateau, it's pretty mm-hmm. pretty badass. Um, Walken seems like a goobery '80s yuppie, like yeah, you know, corporate, just... like yeah, like he, he his his wardrobe gets the villain part too. How about the ski onesie? Oh, oh the white ski onesie yeah. with the fur. Yeah, yeah. Not as not as good as Spy Who Loved Me. That was like that yellow ski onesie. Ooh, I would love to have that yellow ski onesie. Yeah. <laughs> now, something that did not work for me is I do not like how when Tippet and and Bond go investigating the stables and they find the secret trapdoor that goes down to the laboratory where they find, you know, all kinds of the horse steroid plant and their microchip dispersers in there. Bond's like wearing a sweatsuit. Mm. Well, he's, he sneaks out of his room. Hey, that, that's not a sweatsuit. It's, it's, it's a spy suit. That's, that's... Uh, I don't know. It didn't look good. I didn't like it. <laughs> that is kind of his nightwear, right? Because it's nighttime. He's supposed to, he sneaks out of his room. Maybe oh, there's pajamas. Like casual wear. Yeah, it's, but that's like Bond pajamas in a way. Mm, I, I still <laughs> but, want him in a suit and a tie. I guess I don't know. <laughs> that, that that didn't sit well with me. So, uh, and, and his final scene at the end. Uh, sorry, his final scene at the end. He's kind of got a casual attire there too. He's got like this like green windbreaker and like you know he's pretty casual. And maybe my days of Sean Connery of everything being very very formal is, is long gone and timothy dalton takes this many many steps farther but i don't i like my bond to be a little more elegant at all times than that he got a little too dad on you didn't he yeah he got his yeah, like did. well he got a little too dad san francisco yeah exactly <laughs> right a little too silicon valley he like everyone there. in silicon valley yeah. wears a hoodie and raincoat pretty much right windbreaker i did like i did like the attire for the for the both both for mayday as well as for uh, stacy her her white getup was awesome but one of the things that i thought was pretty funny she goes into a construction uh to wear one of the workers uh uniforms and she comes out and she looks amazing in it still and he goes it's a shame that didn't make one that fits you and uh, it's completely tailored for her. So, And she did say that uh, they were going to just have her wear a baggy one, but it looked so ridiculous on her that she's like, can you guys maybe make it a little better for me? And they 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 took it all the way. And so the only thing that didn't fit was pretty much the belt. Oh, wow. And I also like the, I also like the comment of uh, the high heels when the construction worker looks over at her and she's wearing high heels. <laughs> like, it's like, what's going on? They're taking over the Indians. It's women's lib. Now, soundtrack, Luke, I think, if I recall, you're a big fan of the Duran Duran, A View to a Kill. Oh, yeah. It's my favorite Bond the opening theme song, or theme song by far. Number one. Wow. No, that's oh, a high yeah. distinction. I, well, I, I like Duran Duran, period, but it's, it's, it's actually one of my more favorite Duran Duran songs. So well, I, this is bittersweet I, for you. This is their last song that they did before breaking up. How did I not know that? 
Yeah, yeah. The composer, John Barry, who worked with them, because when you do a Bond song, you have to work with the score and be a cool pop song at the same time. John Barry was frustrated with them. They were constantly arguing and not, they were on their last leg. So this was this was the end. Oh, them. wow. But it's the first song of any Bond song that went to number one on the U.S. charts. So it was that massively right. successful. So and, uh, you know, having naked women skiing in the dark with uh, neon streamers blowing in the fans uh neon uh you know body paint on uh... it's the best of both worlds yeah brian is all of that working for you are you ready to dance into the fire <laughs> you know i i don't dislike the song it's probably the only duran duran song that i know every word to i had a cd is one of the first cds i ever got that was just bond theme songs Dr. No through, I want to, I don't think it had Goldeneye on it yet. So it would have been Dalton ending. Uh, So it's fine. It's fine. I will admit and cop to the fact that it's on my change one thing. Sorry. (laughs) It's not in my, it's not in my higher echelon either, but this is a rough period of music for me. And I think for Brian as well. So there are there are lower ones than this though so uh, they the ballady ones i'm glad to see the ballad opening ones from the uh early 80s like the sheena eastons uh i'm glad to see these kind of fall away for this one so they're at least going more up tempo but and i love the john barry score like you know the the fact that uh they take the dance into the fire slash a view to a kill song by duran duran and they turn it into like the romantic moments between stacy and james and he he takes the same song and uses it in three different ways throughout the movie just by instrumentation with the symphony and that's pretty awesome it's actually got a pretty good soundtrack absolutely you can yeah that really makes the movie in some of those sequences for sure yeah can't agree more how he did that really enjoy that let's hand out some awards what do you guys say absolutely all right, MVP of a view to kill Luke. Oh, I'd have to go with Mayday. Grace Jones. Uh, it just yeah, Grace Jones. It, Mayday has to be one of the more unforgettable Bond girls of all time, in my opinion. I mean, for her beauty, her physical strength, and her villainistic qualities. Uh, I said as I said before, you know, she also turns to the good side at the end and becomes a heroine, and she basically saves Silicon Valley and ruining Zoran's yeah. plan. So she kind of hits like every check box. Like she's like a badass and then like a good girl. So it's, she's totally the MVP. Everybody likes a redemption story for sure. Yeah. Brian MVP. Uh, I went with Christopher walking on this fantastic villain. This is a villain led movie. All right. And uh, I'm going to go with walking on this one as well. I just really remember him from this one so well. So love him. Best supporting Luke. Uh, dare I say Tanya, who plays Stacy? Uh, I will not. I will not argue it. I mean, I kind of love to hate the line that she consistently screams during the whole film. Her like whiny, screechy James. You know, just James. Just that's kind of all she says in a way. But kind of love it, hate it. But, but like as you said, she's like an entrepreneur. Well, she takes over her grandfather's business and for just causes wants to save her business and goes after a crazy psychopath like Zoran in the judicial system. It's kind of cool. She's a badass chick. She's underappreciated. I, I, I love that pick. Brian, what about you? Best supporting? 
my supporting is actually going to be Grace Jones. Uh, like I said, it's a it's a villain led movie, and you know they really they they did a, a more than a fair amount of carrying. Yeah, I'm with you for all the same reasons you said. She's great. Uh, the whole scene in the caves and stuff like that, where she turns her rage, and that she's she holds her own acting, you know, with the shoulder to shoulder with Walken. So uh, she's great. Hidden gem. Luke. Hmm. Oh, I know I mentioned this earlier about that appearance of Dolph Lindgren, the Rocky Four. Like that's, oh, yeah. That's kind of cool. That is cool. I like that. That's a hidden little gem. Uh, and I, I dig how he was dating Grace Jones at the time. Yeah. Now, Brian, hidden gem. I didn't actually have a, a, a seed in this one. Like, there wasn't something where I was like, oh, that's, you know... That's something that's uh, buried in any way. So I don't really have a hidden gem. Mm, no hidden gem. I, I, I'm going to have to just apply you one. I'm gonna, your hidden gem is going to be the car that breaks, breaks the top off and then the back end just completely breaks off and he's driving with two wheels. There you go. And my hidden gem's got to be... Uh, I, I'm going to go with Allison Duty, who played Jenny Flex. I'm with you, uh, Luke. The fact that she's later in Last Crusade from Indiana Jones, that's a lot of fun there. So that was a great choice. Recast. If you had to recast somebody and put somebody in their place, who would it be? Brian, Brian, why don't you go first? If you had to recast somebody and put somebody in their place. I, I, I'm probably going to get booze on this, but I want to recast Roger Moore. Michael <laughs> yeah. I, would, I, I would love to see a Michael Caine Bond movie like at that age obviously hmm. well I like Michael Caine so so I would I would re I would I would recast I, I want to see alternate universe Roger Moore is, is Michael Caine I actually had a hard time recasting this one because I like the people involved so much and yes I like Tanya Roberts as well maybe I'm just being uh impartial because I think she's really pretty but maybe that's Maybe that's part of why I'm so apologetic for her. But uh, I, I, I had a hard time, so I just said, wouldn't it be fun if... And I like Patrick McNee as Tibbet, but wouldn't it be fun if Patrick Stewart did uh, Tibbet? Huh. I'd like to see him getting ordered around to carry the bags and stuff like that. I think that would be fun. Yeah, someone else for Tanya Roberts could be interesting. Maybe like a oh, whichever actress played Natalia in GoldenEye. I think she could be pretty... Like Nat- Maybe she'd be Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she's she definitely came across as competent and yes, intelligent. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a great choice. Now, best shot, Luke. Uh, I'd have to lean towards shots of Zorin's chateau, which is Chateau de Chantilly. Chantilly, yeah. Yeah, probably because I have an architectural obsession with the Loire Valley, just the whole French chateau style of the 16th, uh, 15th, 16th, 17th century. Just love everything about it. Uh, those stables really are stables. And that whole bit about the Duke believing he would be reincarnated as a uh, a donkey in that case, or they said a horse in the movie, but that's all real too. So those really, those amazing stables are stables. Right. Exactly. That's, it's really on point that they went, they decided to do that or say that in the film, bring some history into that. Best shot, Brian. Uh, I actually like the horse race. There's just something about how, they film uh, that and then the back and forth between them talking about Zorin. Now, I don't mean this is a scene, but just how they orchestrated the switch off between the horse race to his reactions and then using the cane, that sort of thing. I just thought that was a really pretty visual. Yeah. 
Now, my best shot is going to be when Mayday looks up heartbroken as she's saved the day and removed the detonator out on the uh, push car. And she's got to hold the handbrake because it'll blow up in the cave and detonate the earthquake if she doesn't hold it. So she sacrifices herself to save all of Silicon Valley and also just mainly to screw over Zorn. And she looks up at him as the detonator right as it goes off. And uh, that shot of her looking up, getting her revenge. I like that. That was a good moment. All right. Best scene, Luke. Oh, without a doubt, the opening sequence ski scene. But I'm like entirely biased being a skier myself. That's I, they're my ski scenes are my favorite scenes and bonds. I really wish that Daniel Craig would do one. Uh, I forget what was it Quantum of Sol no, not Quantum of Solace, but there's a didn't he Inspector? Yeah, Spectre. No, he he crashes a plane and doesn't actually ski. Right, it's like a lame ass like snow sequence. But in this film, I love the opening scene ski sequence and how he just gets off the mountain perfects every slalom that he does gets some shots or maybe he doesn't get some shots off as you said but it then eventually goes into that iceberg submarine and escapes for takes like five days to get back to london and does nothing but make love for five days yeah good scene nice (laughs) yeah solid brian best scene I love the fight on top of the the Golden Gate Bridge, despite the uh, issues with um, filming such things at that time. I I just thought it was cool, you know, just the whole fire axe on a Golden Gate Bridge. That's very Bond. On this rewatch, the the whole time I'm I'm still thinking about you and McGregor going, "Don't try it, Anakin. I've got the high ground." <laughs> yeah and i definitely like the juggling dynamite at the end of uh them blowing themselves up so that was a great finish blowing up a blimp is a nice finish always but apparently he had others my best scene is going to be the paris chase scene i love the parachute landing on a boat and bond going on down the elevator chasing after them when bond gets the taxi the french guy's taxi who indignantly goes maca maca Oh, my yeah, I, I de- that's the laugh I need in a Bond that is uh, <laughs> n- not there anymore. And I, I definitely like that goofy French guy being upset of, oh, no. Did you never notice like when he takes him out of that taxi, he's holding it, what looks like to be a little glass of wine in his car. Oh, that's so perfect. <laughs> it's something like he's totally, he totally has a clear cup and it's something red in there. It totally looks like wine. And the stunts work is real. They did do a car jump off of a ramp on top of a bus which was moving slowly but still and then landed it afterwards which that's amazing stunt work again so uh really cool stuff there completely random but not entirely off topic point in the book hunt for red october kathy ryan jack ryan's wife is uh, mortified to find that the doctors in england go out for a pint on their lunch breaks I don't think it's out of the realm of you know uh, disbelief whatsoever to think that that uh, taxi driver actually had a glass of uh, red. So change one thing, Luke. This might change your. This goes against the contrasting your favorite scene, Russell. But I'd have to say the Eiffel Tower kill scene, uh, just because in principle or plot behind the whole thing is just to me kind of if you think about it, just beyond stupid. The uh, the have, poison fishing hook. Yeah, if you have like a if you're trying to kill someone and it's like oh let's try to kill this guy with a fish pole swinging around in a restaurant that's like the easiest way to kill someone that's like just 
Oh, it's so Bond, though. It's Oh, it's so Bond. It, yeah, I was going to say, you need a little so panache. It's Bond, though. But then, well, just think of the whole thing. It's so, like... And then, like, Mayday runs away to, to escape. Instead of running down, yeah, she might have a parachute on, but she decides to run up the Eiffel Tower, only to base jump off the top. So this is Paris's, like, yeah, tallest building. By, yeah, it's, like, tallest building by six or 700 feet, taller than everything around it. So... You would see someone like falling, like jumping off the Eiffel Tower, open a parachute, and then just float down. Like this area is so popular around the Eiffel Tower. And then, you know, see her land on a boat, get into another boat. Wouldn't you just kind of think? And then, then you would see Zorin there, which Zorin's like the richest industrialist in France. Like, wouldn't you think? Like, it would be like seeing Bill Gates or like Elon Musk, like picking up this henchman who just jumped off the Eiffel Tower. Hmm. It's like the kind of the whole, the whole, can you imagine that? Like the whole, you'd be like, oh, hey, isn't that like Bill Gates right there? Or is that Max Zorin? Like, I, I know that guy. He's a rich industrialist. I, <laughs> like, like, I, I, look, I, I'm not trying to let any air out of this whatsoever, but I will say there's probably hundreds of billionaire industrialists around the world that I wouldn't have sight recognition on. It's true. Mm, it's true. It's like, yeah, I'd recognize Elon Musk, but that's because no one looks like Elon Musk. Yeah. Try change one thing. So I'm actually going to to go with the Duran Duran song right now. Uh, not because I actually have a problem with them doing the song or the song itself, but uh, because I would have liked to have gotten the opportunity for The Cure to do a Bond song. Hmm. Well, that's a fun substitution. I don't, I, I'm hol- I'm holding this specific uh, this movie hostage for that, but um, you know, obviously anything in the early '80s would have done. But uh, I f- I feel like I really needed to have a, a, a the Cure song for a uh, for a Bond film. Yeah, my change one thing is gonna be a line. I didn't like the it was this was a little too heavy handed. It was funny, but this is what gets it parried in and. Austin Powers later when the Russian agent uh, has the bubbles turned on the tub and she goes, oh, the bubbles, they're tickling my... And then Bond turns on Tchaikovsky and then she goes, Tchaikovsky! This was a rough moment, I thought. Uh, So I would just like to just omit that, edit that out. So best quote, Luke. (laughs) Uh, We said it just a little bit ago. I love the Frenchman yelling, my car, my car. Yes. I I don't know why. It is a so quintessential Bond. Yeah. I'm really glad you made that your best quote. I love it. Uh, Brian, what about you? A little restless, but I got off eventually. That that is good, actually. That delivered great by Moore. Uh, This is not necessarily meant to be a great line, but it's just Christopher Walken being Christopher Walken. When 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 he wants them to turn the power up, uh, he uh, he goes more, more power, more, do it. <laughs> like uh, I remember watching that one with my friend Matt, and we rewound that one just be like like yeah. Well, it's that time on a five star scale with half star intervals. Luke, what would you give a view to a kill? I give it a solid four. Nice, Brian. How about you? I gave this one a three, but it's a Bond three, so it's a it's a, a three with love. I I didn't see that coming. That that was lower than I expected. Uh, this is a guilty pleasure for me. It turns out I love this movie, and I've seen it too many times. So, you know what? I'm a four point five. I'm just too big of a Bond fan. I, this is this is high up on my Bond list. So, uh, it's in my top ten. 
so therefore I, I can't go too low on this one. So it's not it's not in that upper echelon that gets me all those five stars, but uh, I, this is just my thing, and I'm gonna indulge. I'm gonna go four point five. So uh, Brian, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Let's do it. All right, option one: Ghost in the Shell. In the near future, Major Mira Killen is the first of her kind, a human saved from a terrible crash, who is a cyber engineered to be a perfect soldier devoted to stopping the world's most dangerous criminals. Option two, Akira from 1988. A secret military project endangers Neo-Tokyo when it turns out a biker gang member into a rain-paging psychotic psychopath who can only be stopped by two teenagers and a group of psychics. And option three, spirited away. During her family's move to the suburbs, a sullen 10-year-old wanders into a world ruled by gods, witches, and spirits, where humans are changed into beasts. Uh, Gotta go with that classic anime. We'll go with Akira. All right. Akira it is. All right. Looking forward to that next time. Luke, thanks so much for bringing your love of Bond to us. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for being here, dude. And to all the... Lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get those podcasts. Give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts because those help other people find the show. It's the number one thing you can do to help the show. It takes 30 seconds and it's such a help. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com if you want to go into more depth or if you want to be on the show. So producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to to support us at our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable. Any contributions will go towards making the show better. As always, thank you for listening and be good to each other. Watch more movies. Brian? I mean, look at you. You don't even have a name tag. You've got no chance. Why don't you just fall down? <laughs>